daughter and my new granddaughter, my daughter, my son, and my new granddaughter are here this morning. First, first time back. Hi, Laura. Hi, Hadley. She's asleep. I said, when she wakes up, I'll start teaching. I'll put her right back to sleep. I mean, <laughs> if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will bring one right to your seat. It's important that you follow along with us, especially this morning. You are not going to want to miss this. Exciting stuff we're going to look at today. If this doesn't get you excited for heaven, then you must be dead. I, I don't know. <laughs> this is just amazing. So We're going to go all the way 21 verses, but you'll see as we go along. Uh, we're going to read just the first six verses first, and then we'll get the rest of them as we go along. Starting in verse 1, Apostle John writes, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. The title of my message this morning is A Glimpse of Heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather, to be in this place uh, this morning, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to speak to our hearts. So our job as your church, Lord, is to have an open ear to receive all that you have for us. Lord, uh, we know that you have great things in store for us, and I'm excited to read about them this morning. But the best thing that we have, Lord, is our salvation is the fact that we know you as our Lord and as our Savior. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, they're they're not born again today, Lord, especially touch their heart, touch their life, speak to them through this message of their need to come to you and to be born again today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for your word. We give it to to you, Lord. Ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Story of a one lovely moonlit night as a grandfather and his small granddaughter was taking a walk. The stars were just beautiful, magnificent. As the grandfather started to name the individual stars and constellations, the granddaughter exclaimed, Grandpa, if this is the bottom side of heaven and it's this beautiful, just think how wonderful the top side must be. I'm in heaven. There's a lot of stories about what, what heaven is like. Have you ever wondered why the Bible doesn't talk that much about heaven? I mean, just in the book of Revelation alone, we've seen all about the seven-year great tribulation period in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18. Yet the Lord just spent three chapters here in Revelation talking about the millennium and what comes after that, the new heaven and the new earth. Maybe you wonder why Jesus himself, himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. 
Now, I can't say for sure, and I'm not sure we can know for sure, but we certainly can imagine a few reasons why. First, I believe Jesus spoke of hell more than heaven, simply because real people would end up there in hell, and that's the last place he wanted any of them to end up, and so he spoke on hell more of heaven to warn us. Secondly, I believe that he spoke more in hell than heaven is to wake us up. Because as believers, our job is to, to be ambassadors, to be those that shine as the stars on this earth, the reflection of God's Son, into the darkness of this world. His, you know, he wants us all to have a burden for the lost. What better way to, to do that than to give us a picture of our minds of what hell may be like. But thirdly, I believe that Jesus spoke more in hell than heaven because he knew that if he gave us any more detail about heaven, we simply couldn't handle it. We would be overwhelmed. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2-4, through 4, Paul the Apostle described a time when he actually was caught up into heaven, and he describes it this way. He says, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know, only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. You see, I believe, my personal belief, that this new heaven, which we're going to read about in just a moment, and this new earth is going to be so amazing, so spectacular, so incredible, that if we knew exactly what it was going to be like, we could think of nothing else but heaven. We couldn't handle it. We would, we would be so heavenly minded that we would be no earthly good. Sadly, today people are more earthly minded. They're no heavenly good. But as we come to chapter 21, we get this glimpse of heaven, this new earth, this new city. And if you're a note taker, it's kind of our three notes this morning. We're going to see number one, the new creation. Number two, the new citizens. And number three, the new city. Now, we cannot make everything out in this picture of heaven, but there are some key components in it that can really excite our hearts. Remember John, uh, in writing the Revelation, he's on the island of Patmos, where he's caught up that we might describe, uh, uh, he, you know, he's like in a spiritual time machine. You know, he's way back in time, but he's getting thrown way into the future. So he's doing his best in, in first century terms, to describe things happening you know, beyond the 21st century. But as if to make things even more difficult, he's trying now to describe the glories and the splendor of heaven to us. And of course, words would fail him. I mean, could you imagine trying to explain to this, this uh, isolated tribe on some island what a YouTube video is? How the internet works. Well, you go on the internet and you click, click, what, what's click? You know, it would be tough. So this is kind of tough on his part. Now, on the prophetic calendar, chapter 21 is way into the future. The next event on the prophetic uh, time calendar would be the rapture of the church. That can happen at any time. Once the rapture happened, then a series of events will follow, including the emergence of the Antichrist, so that he'll be known who he is, then the seven-year Great Tribulation period, at the end of the seven years of suffering and death on a scale the world has never known. The nations of the world are going to battle in the Valley of Megiddo there in Israel, and have the Battle of Armageddon. They'll be fighting each other. Jesus will return. They'll all fight against Jesus, and in one word, Jesus will wipe them all out. It'll be over. At that point, we enter into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years reign of Christ on the earth. We looked at this last week. 
Uh, this is the time for a thousand years that Satan will be bound, chained up. Then after that thousand years, he's going to be released one more time. He's going to lead a final rebellion, but it's going to be squashed just as, as quick as it began. But the amazing thing is that there will be actually people rebelling at the same time. And it just shows how deceitful men's hearts are just in, the, in and of themselves. Well, Satan then is thrown into the lake of fire. God then turns his attention on what's known as the great white throne judgment. We looked at that last week. Uh, it's for all those names who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. They're sentenced to the lake of fire. It's at this point we move now into chapter 21. The old have all passed away. Now God says, okay, man has had his turn. Now it's my turn to get down to business. And he establishes a new heaven. He establishes a new earth. And they merge into one, and it's very different than the first. And that brings us to our first point, the new creation. Look at verse 1. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first, first, first earth had passed away. So everything we know here and now, gone, passed away. Now why? Why a new heaven? Well, we're told in Job 15.15 that the heavens are not pure in his sight. In other words, because Satan had been in and out, his presence had polluted it. Now, there are those commentators and some Bible teachers that, that believe and teach that heaven and earth will simply be refurbished or remodeled. That's not the case here. And you can see why when you look at other verses. Isaiah 65.17 says, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The word for create, there is the word bara, and it's the same word that God used in Genesis 1.1 to mean to create for nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created it from nothing. Now, the fact that God creates from nothing continues to be a stumbling block to evolutionists. They say, well, I can't, I can't believe that, that an eternal God or God can create something from nothing. But they have no trouble believing that nothing plus nothing can result in something. Now, way back then, this one kind of gas came with this other kind of gas, resulting in, well, everything. And then the goo came, and then the goo became men. And all it takes to destroy that theory is asking the question, who created the gas? But there will always be those evolutionists out there. They'll continue to be out there. In fact, Peter told us the same thing. You don't need to turn there. But Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter said this, that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And he goes on in verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That is such a great uh, uh, section of Scripture because Peter helps us to understand just how short our time is on this earth and its existence. Because at this point in our study in Revelation, we have passed from the realm of, uh, of time into the realm of eternity. The last reference to the making of time was, we looked at last week, was found in Revelation 20, where after the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years, uh, then we enter into timelessness. Everything is now and, and forever. We are now on God's uh, time schedule. And how different His schedule is than ours. 
I think of Psalm 90 verse 4 which says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past. See, once we enter into this eternal realm, we won't have our little wristwatches on. We won't have our phones to see what time it is. We're not going to have our little appointment thing going on on our calendar. And, and we're not going to go, this person's late or, or I'm going to be late for this. We're not going to have this schedule going on. It's a supernatural eternal realm. And that line from Amazing Grace will fit so well. And it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've known less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And that's what Peter takes the time to help us to understand that in our lives as believers right now, there needs to be a sense of urgency concerning the time that we have left. Folks, time is so short. You know, James in his letter would tell us that our lives are like a vapor of smoke. It's here for a while and then it just vanishes. It's just a vapor. Your life, my life, however long that you have on this earth, James likens it to a mist, a mist, a, a vapor. You know, as we look at the other inhabitants of this earth, it seems like human beings are the only ones that have a, a hassle with time. You know, uh, cats, they certainly don't care. And I have to admit, that it's not one of my favorite animals. Because all they do is lie around. They sleep here or they sleep there. It doesn't matter to them unless it's dinner time. And then they're your best friend. They, you know, they purr and they rub your leg and, and, and then you feed them and then it's, forget you, buddy, I'm out of here. They don't have a care in the world except where they're going to sleep, what piece of furniture they're going to destroy with their claws. No concept of time. Same thing is true for birds. You know, you look at these birds out there and you never see a bird in a hurry. Now it may look like it. Oh, they're taking off. Where are they going? They're going from this tree to that tree. <laughs> oh, they're taking off again. Now they're going to that wire over there. You know, it's like, okay, that's all they do all day long. Now, if this principle is true, then those that waste time are more like the life of an animal instead of a born-again believer. Because of a, a born-again believer, the one who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ realizes that God has gifted us with a measure of time and we should have a sense of urgency concerning time that we don't have much of it. I mean, in each day, there's 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. And every one of them is precious, the precious gift from God to us. You know, time is something we feel we never have enough of, yet we give it away so easily. Someone put it this way, time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. Once you've lost it, you can never get it back. So the time that we have left, folks, we need to be doing something with it. Peter's recommendation was this. Because the earth is going to pass away and heaven's going to pass away because this is only a temporary place, a temporary time, Peter says, hey, live a holy and godly life. It's only going to be a short time period before we, uh, the end of the age is over and then we'll find ourselves face-to-face with eternity. Now think about this. Eternity, it's an unusual concept. So is infinity. I've always enjoyed Chuck Swindoll's illustration of eternity. He puts it this way. Imagine if you have a still ball, solid still, the size of the earth, 25,000 miles in circumference, and every one million years, a little sparrow would be released to land on that ball to sharpen its beak and fly away, 
only to come back in another million years and begin again. By the time he would have worn that ball down to the size of a, a BB, eternity would have just started. See, in our human minds, in our understanding, we draw a line. Here's the beginning, here's the end, we call that time. This is the year I was born, this is the year I will die, and beyond that is eternity. And before that is infinity. And it's just a line that keeps growing longer and longer on both sides. But that's in our understanding. In God's economy, there's no line drawn. He transcends time, is what the physicist would refer to, the time domain. God's outside of time. He looks at time and it's, it's, it's not relevant to him because time itself is not relative. It's, it's not absolute. So we are hanging on to these few precious days that we have and Peter's going, hey, with these few, day, few days that you have, don't fix your attention on this earth. Don't look at the worldly things and the possessions. No, instead, make sure your spiritual life is intact. Make sure your spiritual life is where it needs to be. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because John here says in verse 1 that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. <clears throat> then he goes on, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, also, there is no more sea. Surfers across the world are going, bummer, dude. Wow, no more surfing. Listen, I guarantee you, you will not be bummed out. I mean, think about, why do we have the sea in the first place? I mean, two-thirds of the planet's surface right now is covered with salt water. The average depth is about 2.3 miles. The oceans act as a, a giant filtering system to the world. It, it cleanses the earth and, and making life possible. The, the pollutants that we make, you know, they, 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 they get washed into our soil, streams and river, then take that into our oceans. And like this gigantic antiseptic cleanser, the saline solution of the oceans absorbs, scrubs, breaks down these pollutants and waste. The sun heats up the ocean waters. We get the clouds and then we get rain coming back down on the earth again. But listen, in the new earth, there's going to be no pollution, no decay, no more need for a salty sea. And if two-thirds of the earth is covered by water, then the remaining one-third contains large areas really that are worthless for use because it's all mountains and deserts. Really, a small percentage of the earth's surfaces is inhabitable. But God in this new earth eliminates the barriers that once separated us as nations and different races, and we come all together under his lordship. I mean, imagine all of those from all generations from the very beginning who have trusted in Christ through the centuries coming together one place at one time. That's going to be amazing. This brings us to our second point, the new citizens. Look at verses 2 and 3. We read, Then I saw... John, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Throughout history, God the Father has been masked for man. Now, he selected certain individuals to know him in a special way, such as Abraham or Moses. Of Moses, Scripture says God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to a friend, which I believe was probably a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, but not God the Father. And there were times in the Old Testament where, where God's glory would fill the temple, but in that Old Covenant, 
it was not possible to have this relationship with God like we have now in the new covenant as a result of what Jesus Christ did. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he opened a way to the presence of God for mankind. The scripture describes it as a new and living way made possible by his blood. And now Christ comes and lives inside of us. In this new heaven, we're going to be worshiping the Lord, the, the, the God, the Father, face to face. Have you ever been in a Bible study, maybe in a worship service, and you're just worship, worshiping the Lord and you're sensing God's presence so strong that you go, man, I just don't want to leave. This is just awesome. That's the way it's going to be in heaven all the time. That's why there's no need for a temple. When heaven and earth become one, we have open access to God the Father, no longer separated from Him. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Listen, if God were to show Himself to us this morning, if all of a sudden the roof would open up, and God would come down and say, I am God the Father. We would be gone. We would be just disintegrated on the spot. Why? Because we, we, you know, this corruption that we have, the, the Bible says the corruption must put on incorruption. These bodies we have, in our unholiness, we cannot view a perfect, uh, flawless, holy God. But in a day in the future, in new bodies, we'll be able to see God face to face. Jesus said and taught in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We'll be able to see Him. And at that point, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture will read, if we look at verse 4, will happen. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. See, as wonderful as heaven is going to be, and as perfect as it's going to be, there's going to be memories of loved ones that did not make it to heaven. I mean, think about this. If your sons or daughters or mom or dad or husband or wife wasn't there, I mean, wouldn't you weep eternally? I think we all would. That's why God says, every tear I'm going to wipe away. There's going to be no more sorrow. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more suffering. Because when God creates this new heaven and new earth, uh, again, once again, Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. God's going to wipe away those tears and sorrows, and we'll, we never, we'll never remember those things that have saddened our hearts. Those loved ones that aren't there. We're not going to be all sitting around looking back. Everything will be new. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Back in the late 70s, when my wife Lisa and I were dating, I thought it was her birthday. She would really, really like this Atari Pong game. So I bought it for her. I actually still have a picture of her with on her lap, and she's got this kind of half smile like, what did you buy this for? <laughs> really? I mean, why would you buy something like this? Well, to me, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, this is awesome. This is ping pong for the TV set. You know, if you missed a shot, you didn't have to go chasing after the ball. You know, beep, beep, beep. You get really good at it, you can do a bank shot. Beep, beep. You know, and come down really good. Now, today's technology, the video games, they are off the chart. 
I mean, to look at the graphics of these things. I'm going, man, is that real life? Are people really doing this? No, no, the, my kids are, no, dad, it's, it's all graphics. Whoa, you can't tell the difference between real life and the graphics. Now, do you really want to go back to the beep, beep, beep? No. Same way when you're in heaven. You're going to be having such a great time. It's going to be absolutely amazing. No one's going to say, hey, do you remember Pong? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. What we're doing now, it, it's too great to even think about that beep, beep. Next, in verse 5, it says, And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Think about that. Some things new, few things new. All things are going to be new. Boy, and we like new things, don't we? <laughs> we always like to get the newish version of something. You know, I've I got to get the new, new iPhone. It has three lenses for taking pictures. Wow, this is awesome. Yeah, well, I want to get the new iPhone that, that calls a person before I need to know that I call the person. I mean, what next? You know, they got some new gimmick, something new out there. You've got to have that new option on this phone. People can't wait to get that new version because you don't have to have the latest one that's out there. Or I gotta have that, that new shirt or, or man, uh, I mean, have you, the new season of your favorite TV show. The sequel to the film that's coming. Oh, I can't wait to see that sequel. That new car. Oh, there's nothing like that new car smell. But really, how long do you have a new car? As soon as you get that first scratch on it, ah, oh, it's old. As soon as your kid barfs in the back seat and you can't get that smell out, you go, gotta trade this baby in. It's old. We don't like things that are old, you know. We want something that's new. It's interesting to me that the word that is used here in verse 5 for new, it, it, is, it continues to be new. It's an ongoing newness. It's always new. It's not like we're going to get to heaven and after a couple of months go, oh, this is kind of old now. Anything else new to look at? No. It'll always be new in the heavenlies. You see, Jesus has the authority to make things new because he says so. He says, behold, I make all things new. And that's why we're told in his word in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And they will continue to be new when we get to heaven. And that's an amazing thing to realize, an exciting thing to realize. Well, next we see uh, a comparison in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirst. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Man, we are given this huge contrast here in just these few verses. Verse 6 begins with, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Obviously, this Jesus is identifying himself. I am Jesus. I'm the one speaking here. He identified himself the same way in the beginning of the book of Revelation as we looked at when we started it. In verse 7, we have those that overcome. In verse 8, we have those that don't. Another comparison. What's the difference? Those that overcome have a sense of accomplishment. The sense it's done. A sense of finality. Listen, God began by creating back in the book of Genesis. On the seventh day, he rested. But he still was not done. 
Now as this new creation takes place and we have a new heaven and a new earth, God says, okay, now I'm done. I rested for a while, but now I'm done. And we see that this big direct relationship between Genesis and the book of Revelation. We see the comparison between the beginning and the end. Genesis answers the question, how did it all begin? Revelation answers the question, how does it all end? Genesis gives us the beginning of sorrow and death. Revelation shows us the end of sorrow and death. Genesis shows us paradise lost. Revelation shows us paradise restored. Genesis saw fellowship with God broken. Revelation shows God dwelling with man. Verse 6 again says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now typically in scripture, water means two different things. One, it, it, we could talk about the, the, the Holy Spirit. Another thing means, means the word of God. So this is saying the word of God is the knowledge of God and I'll be able to drink of the knowledge of God for all eternity. In other words, in heaven, you're not going to have any questions. I will know fully. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. There won't be any questions. Well, well, why did this happen? Well, how come that happened? Your mind will be completely satisfied. All your answers would have been, all your questions would have been answered. And when it comes to the knowledge of God, I will drink freely. When it comes to the Spirit of God, I will drink freely as well. What's represented by the Spirit of God? Joy and love and peace and patience and self-control and kindness. I'll drink freely of this water. But also notice with me that not only will it be a place of total satisfaction, total sufficiency, but it's also a place of total security. It's going to be totally safe. Why is that? Well, verse 8 tells us there'll be no one there that will make us feel unsafe. Those that are evil, those that are doing the evil in this world present, they're not going to be there. There's no outside influences. As you're walking down the streets of gold, someone isn't going to try and rip off the gold off of the ground. No one's going to put graffiti on the gates, the pearly gates, you know. Today, you know, you can't really feel safe totally. Hollywood has made it such that if you, you know, decide to take a walk in the woods, you're afraid some guy in a hockey mask is going to jump out and kill you. But you see, in heaven, there's complete safety, complete security, not dependent on any outside physical source. The only one that you depend on for your safety and security is the fact that God happens to be there. There's no bad guys there. And what's interesting about verse 8 here is that God talks about the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And he places them with the same group as the unbelievers. Look at verse 9. Or verse 8, rather. He says, but, but the cowardly, unbelieving, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Now, when you look at this list in verse 8, what do you think is the worst sin there? I mean, murder is a pretty horrible sin. Sexual immorality, that's pretty bad. But the worst sin enlisted in this list of these sins is that of the unbeliever. Because unbelief is a root in relationship to God that leads to the rest of these sins. I mean, if you really love God, then you're not going to be sexually immoral. 
If you really love God, you're not going to murder anybody. If you really love God, you're not going to lie. You're not going to steal. If you really love God, it's going to affect your whole way of living. And so, eternity is going to be a brand new world in every single way. And this, including a new Jerusalem. And this brings us to our, our final point, a new city, number three. Let's read about it. Look at it in verses 9 through 21. As we get this description of this new city and how John is invited to come and see it. First look at verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. After all the horrors of the great tribulation, all the horrors of Armageddon, that John had witnessed, that John had been told to write down, to record all the, 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 the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, all, one after another. What a blessing it must have been for John to be invited to come and see this. Now, understand that if John wants to see, he must say, yes, I will come. In the same way, if you want to see God move in your life, if you want to see God work in your life, you, you need to come to him. You need to get into his word. You need to pray. You need to seek his face. You need to meet with God. Same thing for us as believers. We need to meet together as a church meeting and getting in God's word and and meeting the Lord. The invitation is to come. He says, come and see the bride, the lamb's wife. And the language here is figurative in the sense that it's a description of the city. uh, is a bride adorned for her husband. But it's all absolutely beautiful. See, this bride identified as really the church simply means the inhabitants of the city. You know, city is made up of more than just mortar and steel and and, and building is mainly made up of, of people. I mean, you call the city, the people live in the city. This holy Jerusalem, verse 10, includes the church. I think this also corresponds with what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, when Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that you may be also. This is where we're going to be. This is going to be our home, this holy Jerusalem, verse 10. We're going to spend eternity with Christ. It's going to be perfect. Look at verse 11. It'll have the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We'll look at more of that in a moment. This is going to be a city like you've never seen. Now look at verses 12 through 21. Also she had a great and high wall and the twelve gates. And twelve angels in the gates, the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve, the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of the wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. 
The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I think we all heard the story about the man who was caught trying to get into heaven with a sack over his shoulder. And Peter said, hey, what's in the sack? The man replied, as many bars of gold as I could carry. Peter says to him, you brought in pavers? What's up with that? Get it, pavers, gold, okay. <laughs> Let me point out to you several cool things about the city, and then we'll close. First three we might say are physical traits of the city, and then the last three you might say are more applicable things about the city. First thing, physical things we, we see about this new Jerusalem is that we're told in verse 16 that it's a, it's a square. It says the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine was telling me, he goes, yeah, I'm teaching about you know, the new Jerusalem, and, and, and uh, I, I used a boar cube from Star Trek to show our church. I thought, well, that kind of fits. There, there you go right there if, you, if you're a Star Trek fan. If not, that means nothing to you at all. But if you're a fan, you know exactly what it means. Um, but I think it will be more like this, if you think about it. If, if you had to picture in your mind what it would be like, it would be kind of like that. The new Jerusalem is going to be a literal city and a literal future kingdom and a new literal heaven on earth. Seems to be the promise that God gave to Abraham in, the, in Hebrews 11.10 when he says, whose builder and maker is God. This will be the, the literal capital of the future new earth. And again, the Bible speaks of the dimensions of the city as 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So it's going to be the shape of this cube. And by today, today's calculations, that would be 1,500 miles square. So imagine going from Springfield to Carson City, Nevada, going from Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico cube. So let's go 1,500 miles high as well. And we're talking one big city. Now, It'll be a new heaven and a new earth, so we have no idea what this new earth is going to look like. But if you compare our present earth with the size of this new Jerusalem, it would look something like this. Big old, big old square, I mean, on there. I, I mean, it's amazing. Next in verse 19, we see that it speaks of these precious stones that the walls are made of. Verse 19 says, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. I can't imagine how beautiful, number one, and how strong these walls are going to be. Eternity, this place is going to be like our Savior. I mean, our Savior has the combination of strength and beauty. In fact, this will fulfill Psalm 96.6. It says, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, we read, and we know that this whole structure will be made of precious stones, as well as we know that the gates are going to bear the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundations are going to name the, the 12 tribes of the apostles. They're going to be engraved somehow on these stones. Then John describes these stones in verses 19 and 20. But what great, what's great about these stones is, for the most part, they're pretty transparent in nature. You can see right through them which would suggest that the, the walls are transparent in nature as well. Now, obviously, one of the reasons that would be the case is that no one will have anything to hide. Everything will be wide open. And best of all, in this new Jerusalem, we'll be able to see Jesus. 
I mean, we read that the city is full of all these brilliant, bright colored stones, all reflecting the glory of the Lord. It's going to be so cool. Nothing like this ever before. No city like this. I mean, let your imagination go wild on this. Streets made of gold, diamonds reflecting these great jewels embedded on the sides with these, this kaleidoscope of sparkling light and cascading colors just pouring forth. Back in verse, verse 11, it mentioned the city was like a jasper stone. It says, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, because it's described as clear as crystal, many commentators believe that this is a perfectly clear diamond, is what it's made out of. You know, we place great value on diamonds right now, don't we? There's one called the, the heart of eternity. This particular diamond it's blue in color. It's worth $16 million. Then there's what's called the pink, pink star diamond. It has a pink issue. It's worth about $71.2 million. There's a hope diamond. We've heard about that. It's worth about $250 million. It gets better. There's a Cullinan diamond discovered in Cullinan, South Africa in 1905. It's the largest rough diamond of gem quality ever found, weighing in an incredible 1.36 pounds, worth up to $2 billion. Now, let's take that knowledge and put it into the size of the New Jerusalems. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, all made out of diamonds. I'm no mathematician, but I think it's going to be absolutely amazing, mind-bottling. Because this stuff on earth, you know, man lives for the accumulation of these very stones we're reading about. Oh, get some diamonds and rubies and emeralds and gold. Yet these, the two minerals that we value so highly on earth, diamonds and gold, are going to be sheetrock and pavement in heaven. I mean, crazy. Now, the third thing we read here in this new heavenly city is that it has pearly gates. Look at verse 12 and 13 and then drop down to verse 21. Twelve gates, twelve angels at the gates, and the names written on them were the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold. It was transparent glass. Listen, we've heard many, many pearly gate stories, have we not? Let me give you one. A guy named Patrick dies. He's standing in front of the pearly gates. He sees a man sitting there at the table and thought, wow, this must be St. Peter. The man says, well, hello, Patrick. Just got to Check through some papers here in your past and ask you a few questions to make sure you can get in. He's rifling through this stack of papers. He says, Patrick, you've done many things, good and, and bad, until finally he stops at this one particular page. He says, I see that you played soccer for St. Vincent's soccer team and you scored the winning goal against St. Peter's in the final. That's true, said Patrick, but you cheated and you tripped up a guy so he couldn't follow you, allowing you to score the goal. Also true, said Patrick nervously. Well, then, I'm just going to open the gates and let you come on in. Delighted, Patrick stepped up to the gates. Then he turned his way to say thank you to St. Peter. The saint smiled back and said, It's Peter's day off. My name is St. Vincent. <laughs> dumb joke. Okay, it's a dumb joke. But we've all heard those dumb jokes about the pearly gates. And most of the time, all those jokes center around, Well, if you do good enough, you can get into heaven which we know no one can be good enough. It's only through Jesus who lived a perfect life and was good enough that he made a way for us to enter heaven as we put our faith and trust in him. 
But here we read that there are actual pearly gates that seem to be made of a single pearl, it says. I mean, that had to be some gnarly oyster, if you ask me. I mean, not a bunch of pearls, just a solid pearl. Interesting choice of building material for a gate, especially when you think about how pearls are made and how they're actually formed. It usually starts with some form of, of a tiny irritant, you know, like a grain of sand, so the little oyster will secrete a special fluid to protect the linings of its insides, whatever part that we eat when you have steam clams or whatever. So to protect it, that irritant gets covered up with a secretion and becomes hardened until it turns into what we know as a pearl. But originally it starts as an irritant and becomes a thing of great beauty. In the same way for us, there might be those irritating believers that are in your life right now that you're going, I don't really want to spend eternity with that guy. I don't really want to see her in eternity, you know. I don't want my mansion next to their mansion, you know. I don't, you know, I don't know. But you see, when we get to heaven, we will find ourselves blown away by the very same people who bugged us. There will be like this pearl, this glorious transformation of every believer. Because 1 John 3, 2 tells us that when we see Jesus, we shall all be like him. So the things that irritated you about your neighbor or your husband or your wife will be done away with in heaven and all will be left will be this fine, beautiful pearl. How appropriate that the gates leading to the city are made out of pearls because we were certainly irritants to God. And, and God, by his grace, forgave us and made us into new people. And that's a good reminder of it. You know, over in Matthew 13, Jesus tells the story of a man who sold everything to purchase a pearl. And that's just what Jesus did for us. He gave everything he had, even his very life, to purchase us. Now, this brings us to the last three things we see about the city, the New Jerusalem, and then we'll close. Number one, it's destination. Number two, it's inspiration. And the third thing we see is it's motivation. First, it's destination. The desti- it's the destination of all true believers. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So only those that are born again will be able to enter this, this new city, this kingdom of God. Second thing we see about the city, this new Jerusalem, is its inspiration. It's an inspiration for all believers. It is our hope. Biblical definition for the word hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Now that should affect our lives presently as we look around this world and see that our hope is becoming more and more tangible each and every day. I mean, it's like when you're kids, you tell your kids you're going to take them down to Silver Dollar City and you get closer and they recognize the road and they know they're closer and they're getting very, very excited because they know that soon they're going to be enjoying that park. Or as you leave the place this morning, church this morning, and you get in your car and you head towards Campbell Avenue, towards that Krispy Kreme donut shop and you, you know that it says hot now and the light just flashing and you know you're going to be enjoying that warm, delicious Krispy Kreme. You go, oh man, this is going to be good. Listen, based off of what God's Word says, the world would be like just the way it is before His coming. We know that our hope is almost fulfilled. I mean, we're turning on the Campbell right now. I mean, we're, we're ready to go. Not that the Krispy Kreme is heaven, but heavenly sometimes, but so it's an inspiration. Third thing is, it should be our motivation. It should be our motivation for all believers. 
to see this, you can turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11 or just look on this verse of the screen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is what is known as the hall of faith where uh, we're as believers, we're still on this walk of faith. These men, these women, they completed their walk of faith. But a classic example of this is Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which is foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Listen, old Abe didn't give up because he was looking for this city. He didn't go back to Egypt. He didn't find the city of his dreams in Egypt. He didn't find the city of his dreams in Jericho. Neither did Jacob in Syria or Isaac in Canaan. Everywhere they went, all they found was an emptiness. A sense that where they ended up was not the place they hoped to be. They were always disappointed here on this earth. They had a desire for the heavenly city, which in turn made them feel very uncomfortable with this present world. They desired the city that manifested the glory of God. That desire made them very willing to turn their backs on the world and the places that they have been that were void of the glory of God. And eventually they understood that this new Jerusalem is going to be so much better than any place on earth that they've ever visited, that ever, that ever saw. In fact, look at verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. They believed by faith, they received by faith that they would see that city not made with hands, but the city whose builder and maker is God, the one that we've just been looking at. And a turn that caused them to confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14 and 15 says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Declare there, that word means to live out. Their lives tell people that this world is not our homes from the way that they live. Verse 15, And truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, out they would have opportunity to return. In other words, if they kept looking back and looking back at where they were at, they would have not looked forward. They would have probably gone back into that old way of life. They would have not looked for the new city, but instead gone back into the ways of the world. You know, Jesus warned about that in Luke 17.32 when he said, Remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? Looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and as I said last week, she turned into a salt shaker. Jesus also said in Luke 9:62, no one after putting his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Finally, in Hebrews 11:16, we read, but now they desire better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he's prepared a city for them. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We, I mean, we, we've looked through this. We've tried to imagine what it was like. We can't even come close to it. I mean, in the way we can figure it. One day we all will dwell in this new Jerusalem, in this city. But at this present time, we are to be ambassadors for him in this strange land. I mean, think about this. What happens when war is about to break out in a foreign country? 
we call all of our ambassadors home, right? Come on back, ambassadors, you know. Folks, you know what? God is about to call us all home. He's ready to call us home. I think the big question is, are you ready to go? Do you have the hope of heaven? Do you know for certainty that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? I'm going to close with one last Pearly Gates story. It isn't a joke, so don't think it's going to be funny. But <laughs> not, that, not that they're funny anyway, but, but this is more of an illustration. Man dies and goes to heaven. Peter, of course, meets him at the pearly gates and says to the man, this is how it works. You need a thousand points to get to heaven. Tell me all the good things that you've done and I will give you points for each of them. The man, excited, says, I've been married to the same wonderful woman for 50 years, never cheated on her, not even in my heart. Peter says, that's great. That's worth three points. I got to get to a thousand? Yeah, a thousand. Three points. Yeah, well, the man says, listen, I attended church faithfully every Sunday. I went to midweek Bible study. Uh, Peter says, that's great. That's worth a point. One point, asked the guy. Well, wait, the guy says, I worked in the soup kitchen. I spent my weekends feeding the homeless people. Hey, that's good for two more points, Peter says. The guy, at this rate, says, the only way I'll get to heaven is by the grace of God. Exactly, says the man. That's worth a thousand points, the grace of God. I bring this up because, amen, exactly. Because people today think that they're getting into heaven by some sort of point system. Those are the same Christian people who who don't read their Bible. Sometimes even Christians think this. Well, if I just do enough good works and a certain kind of life, this will get me in. Listen, even if you could do all those things, you would still fall so short. That's what the word sin means. It means to miss the mark, to fall short. What is the mark that God has set for all humanity? Absolute, total perfection. You say, how can anyone measure up to that? Exactly, no one can. That's where Jesus comes in. He was God, he was man, he bridged the gap when he died upon the cross and bore our sin. He died in our place, he rose from the dead. The only way I'm going to get to heaven is except through me. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Think about it. Because if you don't go to heaven, I hate to, and you'll miss out on all eternity.